Bible and go with me to John chapter 13. We're going to look at uh, verses 21 to 30 today. We'll make this our meditation. It's a, a very a painful passage in some ways to read in light of the preciousness of Jesus Christ and the hatefulness of Judas who betrays him under the devil's influence. But at the same time, I think there are some very powerful truths to take away from these words, and some of them you've already sung about this morning. Let me read. I'm going to start reading in verse 18 to give us some context and land in verse 31. I am, I am not speaking of all of you, Jesus says. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, And testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom Jesus, of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm grateful to be here with these brothers and sisters who are gathered for the sake of your name and for the sake of your glory. Uh, I know that none of us are gathered here to simply hang out. We are here to, to hear from you, hear from your word. We are here sing your praises together as one body in Christ. And we are here to learn how we might uh, serve, serve your kingdom, serve each other. And I pray that you would use these words to work these things even more deeply in us, uh, that your spirit would come and help, help us understand your word and that he would do so despite my own inadequacies. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Several things I want us to see this morning. All of them revolve around something that Jesus is doing for his new community of followers. I've mentioned this before, but as we've moved from chapter 12 in the Gospel of John into chapter 13, there's been a major shift that's occurred. Jesus is no longer dealing with, with, with uh, the large Jewish crowds. He's no longer dealing with the, the religious authorities in the public square. He is now privately with his disciples, and he is preparing these disciples to be his new community. We know this new community as the church. Okay, so these next uh, five chapters, Jesus will be teaching this new community more about his mission, more about their own mission, more about who he is in light of their mission. But something more must happen to prepare the new community before they're commissioned into the world. You see, there's still a devil among them. There's still a devil even among the twelve that he's had, that he has here. And even one of the twelve is is still dancing with the devil in the secret places of his heart. Beneath the surface, he's no true follower of Jesus. So as part of Jesus' preparation for this new community, as part of his care for the other eleven, as part of his protection of them, we see at least four actions by Jesus, four things Jesus does for the sake of this new community. And if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus today, you are part of that new community. So hear these things for yourself as well, not just for these 11. First of all, Jesus provides his new community with an eyewitness to the truth. In particular, the truth about, Jesus, about Judas Iscariot. Jesus provides his new community with an eyewitness to the truth. You see in verse 21 that the disciples are absolutely stunned when Jesus announces that there's a betrayer, one of the the betrayers in their midst. All they can do is look at each other with great uncertainty hanging in the air. Nobody in the room knows the truth about the betrayer except Jesus. Jesus sees what we cannot see. He alone knows the truth. But Jesus doesn't keep the truth hidden from them, nor does he keep it hidden from us, does he? He reveals the truth. It's just that the way he does it is through the eyewitness testimony of the Apostle John. The Apostle John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, we already saw in chapter... Look, if you look at 13, chapter 13, verse... uh, Verse, verse, verse... One, at the end there, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved him to the end. And now we get here that this other one, John, is the disciple whom Jesus loved. So it's like, did he love the eleven? Did he love the John more than the eleven? This is a way for John to refer to himself throughout his gospel. He'll do it several more times. And each time it's related to the eyewitness testimony that he's bearing. He is, it's, it's speaking of his closeness to Jesus. His closeness to Jesus gives him authority and uh, to, to speak and bear witness to things about Jesus that other disciples did not get to participate in. So John is the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he's the only one who knows firsthand why Jesus dipped the morsel of bread and gives it to Judas. He knows firsthand because Jesus told him when he laid his head Against his chest. That's what it means when it's 
when uh, I think uh, the ESV here says, leaning back against Jesus. Literally, he, he put his head in his bosom and asked Jesus this question. This is the same language we found in chapter 1 applied to Jesus' close relationship to God the Father. Right? You remember that one? Chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, literally, who is in the Father's bosom. He has made Him known. So this is what's going on. The closeness of Jesus to His Father in chapter 1. That closeness gives Him authority to bear witness to what He's seen about the Father. We see the same thing here with the Apostle John and Jesus. John's closeness to Jesus, resting in his bosom, so to speak, gives him authority to say things that he saw and knew, and Jesus told him that the other disciples did not get to participate in. We know this because in 28 and 29, the others still don't know what's going on around the table. So this closeness to Jesus that the Apostle John has gives him a unique qualification to testify about the truth. Jesus told John what he was doing. John, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And then John spells out exactly what he witnesses happened. When Jesus had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So this is very kind of Jesus. He, he doesn't just send Judas out and leave everybody in the dark. He tells one of the eleven namely John, so that after all these things play out, John can tell the rest of them the truth about what's going on and why it took place the way it did. And John would be giving them just, he wouldn't be giving them just a lucky guess. Well, I think he did it for this reason. He's actually giving them from the, from the mouth, he's giving us words from the mouth of the one who knows all things, who sees into the recesses of Judas's heart. He's telling us the truth. So this should be a great comfort to us as it was, I'm sure, to the eleven. That when we read, not just this, this passage in and of itself, but when we read this gospel and the other four gospels and the New Testament as a whole and the entire Bible, we are not reading the opinions of men. We are reading the, the testimony of people who have been eyewitnesses to the works of God. They are true. At the end of the, the gospel in chapter 21... Verse 24, this, uh, John concludes by saying, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. I'm often struck at how people will believe a, a second and third hand report from people, you know, whether through the newspaper or the, or the internet or by word of mouth or other people. And then just outright dismiss the eyewitness accounts of the Gospels. I once asked a skeptic over here at Starbucks why he was more quick to believe the words of the newspaper in his hand than he was to believe the Bible in my hands. And we sat there and talked for a few minutes and we both concluded that at the end of the day, what was really going on is he was just simply morally opposed to the message of the Bible, despite all the historical evidence I could point him to. And that's the case for everybody who rejects the testimony of the eyewitnesses in Scripture. Ultimately, they find it 
morally distasteful. Church, you need to rest in the fact that these are not embellished fairy tales about Jesus Christ. The apostle bears witness to what he saw, what he felt with his own hands, what he heard with his own ears concerning eternal life. And Jesus has been kind to give us a heads up on the truth through these men like John. He hasn't left the church in the dark. He told his disciples who he was. He showed them everything that was going on. And they wrote it down for our instruction by the guidance of God's Spirit. So may we be quick to trust their testimony. Secondly, Jesus then endured trouble to help his new community. Jesus, the sovereign Lord of the universe, endured trouble to help his new community. If you remember... Uh, When we looked at verses 18 and 19, we saw how much Jesus was in control of everything going on with this betrayal. Right? He was not going to the cross as a mere victim of the circumstances around him. He was laying his life down in obedience to his father's plans. Plans that were already laid, laid out in the Old Testament itself. And plans that only Jesus had the authority to then unfold from the Old Testament. And even as the betrayal of Judas plays out here, it's very clear who's in control of the situation. Look at what's going on from verse 21. It's Jesus who announced that the, that the betrayal is about to take place. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then he then, he, he then identifies the betrayer in verse 26 by giving Judas the piece of bread. And even when Satan himself enters Judas, it's neither Satan nor Judas who's ultimately controlling the situation. It's still Jesus. What you are going to do, do quickly. But even in the midst of such a remarkable display of Jesus' sovereign majesty, his foreknowledge of all things, his control over the entire situation, we'd be missing something remarkable about our Savior if we overlooked the note in verse 21, the beginning. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. This Jesus... This sovereign Jesus was troubled in his spirit. You know, we're right as a church to stress the absolute sovereignty of God in all things. But I think we should guard ourselves. I don't think. I know we should guard ourselves from becoming so one-sided in our theology that we become less than biblical. Jesus is sovereign. But that doesn't make him some cold-hearted, stoic savior who doesn't identify with the sorrows felt by human beings. With the deep grief caused by ungrateful friends and betrayal. Part of the Son of God's redeeming work was to take to himself a human nature and feel what we feel. And identify with our grief and carry in his body the sorrows that plague all humanity. Isaiah 53 calls Jesus a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that sorrow and that grief wasn't limited to the cross. Jesus' suffering on the cross brought all of his, all of his sorrows to their climax. But his entire earthly ministry was drenched with trouble. Just in John's gospel alone, we've seen how much he suffered from the rejection of his own people, the Jews. How much he endured from the false accusations of the Pharisees. How much the top religious authorities wanted him dead. 
How fickle the faith of his own disciples really was. How much inner turmoil, sin and death brought upon the one who had created all things good. Remember this when he approached the tomb of Lazarus. And he was deeply agitated and troubled in spirit. Sin and death before him. And now another trouble we see added here is he faces the betrayal of a close friend, Judas. And as he looks in the face of what that betrayal will ultimately cost him, it will cost him his life. Now the writer of Hebrews tells us that when Jesus endures all, those, all these things, he does so without sin. Jesus is without sin when he feels all these troubles. We're often controlled by our emotions, right? When we endure trouble. Jesus is not controlled by his emotions like we are. His emotions are always in line with his perfections. But as a man, God's son still knows grief, trouble, sorrow, distress, forsakenness by friends, suffering, betrayal, loneliness. And he chose to endure all these things for you to demonstrate the extent of God's love for you. It's rather unthinkable when you consider the holiness of God's Son and the rottenness of our rebellion against Him. The preciousness of Jesus Christ and the trampling underfoot of that preciousness by our own sins. If we deserve anything, it's an eternity of trouble. It's an eternity of trouble under His wrathful response to our sin. It's an unceasing anguish of soul tormented in outer darkness away from His glorious presence. And yet in mercy, God's Son chose to identify with our humanity and suffer unspeakable trouble without sinning so that He might be offered up as a perfect sacrifice to remove the eternity of trouble facing our souls. Jesus' enduring trouble is part of God's extravagant love. He endured trouble to demonstrate that despite the innumerable troubles he faced, there was not a single one that would keep him from dying for you. Not a single one. Not a single one that would make him just turn his back and say, forget this mission. Not even the agonizing cries in the garden when the weight of God's wrath stood on the horizon would thwart his love for you. Every step of Jesus' earthly ministry should remind you that God's love will not fail you. It didn't fail you amidst some of the most severe troubles faced by our Savior, climaxing in the cross itself. And it will certainly not fail you now, with that same Savior now risen from the dead, victorious over all of the troubles we face. He entered the troubles, the greatest of them being the darkness of death under God's wrath and rose victorious from the grave to ensure that all who trust in Him, all who trust in Him will one day have all their troubles removed because all their sin will be removed and every tear will be wiped away from their eyes in His kingdom of peace. He also endured trouble so that until that day comes, you can come to Him with your troubles, your loneliness, your maltreatment, your forsakenness, your ungrateful friends, and find grace to help you in time of need. Hebrews 4 says that we do not have a high priest who is, able to, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
One who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You want something practical to hang on to this morning? Jesus opened the door of heaven for you through all of his troubles that you might have access to God himself in the midst of all your troubles. That you might draw near to the throne of God with your troubles and God will help you. He will not, he will not help you apart from Jesus Christ, but he will help you through Jesus This is a great encouragement for the mom whose husband and children show little thanksgiving for her day-long labors of love. She can cast her burdens on the Lord in the midst of everybody's complaints and sour attitudes at five o'clock and find the grace to stand against temptation And keep loving as Christ loved her. Hear this, mothers, from Hebrews 12. Jesus endured hostility from sinners against himself in order that, for this purpose, that you may not grow weary and lose heart. What a great encouragement for the new believer in Christ who loses his friends because of his newfound love for Jesus. Christ is still his help, even when friends walk away. Christ stands beside you as one who identifies with forsakenness by friends. He knows that Judas walked out on him too. He knows forsakenness even to the extent of suffering under the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried. And this he did so that you would gain God himself as your forever companion. And if God is for you, who can be against you? You read it earlier. What a great encouragement for the wife or husband whose spouse has caused so much turmoil in the soul. You can go to the sovereign Jesus without questioning if he really knows what you're dealing with. He not only knows your turmoil... His own spouse, Israel, betrayed him too. We've seen that from chapter 1 to 12. But he's already done something about it, so that regardless of what the next 30 years may bring you, he's guaranteed you a trillion years of the best marriage relationship heaven and earth will ever know, that of Christ and his bride. And what a great encouragement for the one whose boss couldn't care less about you or your family or your weekends or your vacation time. Jesus endured similar hardships not to purchase you escape from your difficult work environment, but to give you free access to the very presence of God while in your difficult work environment. That others might look in and see, this man has something I don't have. He doesn't value vacation. He values a victorious Savior. And what a great encouragement this is for us when we engage the people in white settlement more intentionally with the gospel. Knowing this about our Savior prepares us to endure the betrayal of people who may just want to use us for their own ends. It prepares us to endure the rejection of our love and then find grace to help us continue loving in the face of temptations to quit loving. 
even if numbers on, on Sunday nights stay low, right? Big idea Sunday nights here. If they stay low, even when we see few people right now responding to the gospel that I know that you're taking to them regularly. Even if only a handful of folks show up to v- VBC this week, Vacation Bible Camp, we have nothing to complain about before our Savior. He endured similar rejection so that you would not grow weary and lose heart, so that you would be full of more of His love, which endures maltreatment from others, that you might continue extending the same thing, the same kind of love toward others. Whatever your troubles may be or whatever troubles you may encounter, Jesus is no stranger to them. God's Son became a man to identify with them and then do something about them with His life. Death, resurrection, and return. Such extravagant love has to move us to keep pressing on in the Christian life despite what troubles come our way. So keep this in mind as you go about your day and your various ministries to others. Jesus suffered trouble for his new community. And if you believe in him today, you're part of that new community. There is grace for you every day through him. Number three, Jesus purges what is satanic from his new community. Jesus purges what is satanic from his new community. In verse 27, we have Judas taking the morsel of bread from Jesus, and it says, Satan enters into him. There's no reason to see this possession as something sort of undermining Judas's will, as if, as if to say, like, Judas is, uh, is the devil's puppet. We're told in verse 2, chapter 13 here, that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, so there's temptation going on. We're In chapter 12, verse 6, we're told that Judas was a thief. He treasured money more than he treasured Jesus, and that is certainly satanic. And then in chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus already made it clear that Judas was in cahoots with the devil. There's another place in chapter 8 where it says that uh, the Jewish authorities were wanting Jesus dead, were plotting to kill him, And Jesus calls them out on it and says, your father is the devil. So this temptation to kill Jesus is part of your father being the devil. In other words, all these things show that Satan entered Judas because Judas wanted him to. Judas is not going to stand before God one day and make some some legitimate excuse. Oh, the devil made me do it. He will perish for his actions. He had opened the door of his heart to the devil's temptations long before this possession took place. The devil had been feeding him lies and Judas started to believe those lies. The devil had tempted him with all that money could buy and Judas found 30 pieces of silver to be worth more than the God of infinite riches. Jesus told Judas that joy was to be found in sacrificially serving others just moments before And Judas went out believing actually the way of Satan, that to put oneself first is better than Jesus' way. The result was Satan entering Judas to rule the whole of his inner man like a tyrant. That's the way J.C. Ryle put it. So Jesus 
sends him out from the twelve. And it's at this point, if you look with me real quick at verse 34, it's at this point that uh, Jesus gives the new commandment to the eleven who were left. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you, you eleven, are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What's going on is when when we see this establishment of the new community of love, in comparison to his casting Jesus out of the community, is that the new community is to be full of lovers not liars. There's no room for the satanic in the church of Jesus Christ. No tolerance for people who dance with the devil Monday through Saturday and show up Sunday to make good impressions. No tolerance for folks who give the appearance of being in without loving Jesus from within here. This is one of the reasons why we do our best to maintain regenerate church membership. This is why we have an interview process and everything else here at this church. It's another reason why we practice church discipline when somebody proves with their words or their deeds that they love the ways of the devil and his kingdom more than they love the ways of Jesus and his kingdom. This is why you see later in the, in, in the, in the, when you're reading Paul's letters... And whatnot, and we come and you come to those passages where somebody's being cast out of the church. A lot of times, it describes them as being handed over to Satan in order that they might be taught not to blaspheme, handed over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. It's because when you're being cast out of the new community, you are now without the protection of the gospel and without the protection of God's people. You are now in Satan's domain. His tyrannical domination is devastating outside the church. This is why we must remain aware of Satan's devices as a people who call themselves the church and take up the shield of faith together, not just as individuals. Paul gave that command to the church as a whole. You take up the shield of faith together to quench Satan's fiery darts. You resist the devil and you stand firm in your faith and you pray to the one who is stronger in heaven. The devil, 1 Peter 5 says, still roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we must not open the door to him like Judas had done. We must not entertain his wicked lies like Judas did. We were chosen for something infinitely greater, weren't we? Jesus tells the remaining 11 disciples in chapter 15, verse 16, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. This is why he chose the 11. We must fight with all vigilance against temptation and sin because we are different than Judas. We were chosen for deliverance, not destruction. We were chosen for joy, not jealousy. We were chosen for love, not licentiousness. We were chosen for wonder at our God, not worldliness. We were chosen for beauty, not betrayal. 
So please hold fast to Jesus, church, and strengthen your faith. Jesus sent Judas out from the new community so that we would remain under his perfect care. Not follow Judas to destruction. In fact, the whole reason why any of the eleven, any of the eleven, stay with Jesus is Jesus. We know this from Luke 22. Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have all of you, to sift all of you like wheat. And then he turns to Simon and says, but I have prayed for you in order that your faith may not fail. The power and prayers of Jesus stand behind the eleven who don't betray him like Judas did. He has kept them in his power for a different purpose. That they might enjoy his presence in his community forever. And the same is true if you're trusting Christ today. Jesus has prayed for you to overcome the devil through his power. And his prayers will not fail you. His prayers will not fail you because the same priest that's in heaven praying for you is the same priest who gave his life for you on the cross. What he secured with his cross, his prayers will bring into effect. I think we should consider that by nature, none of us are any better off than Judas. Ephesians 2 says that we all came into the world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We too, by nature, were children of wrath. The only reason any of us are part of the new community by faith in Jesus Christ is because of Jesus. Without Jesus, we'd all walk out with Judas. But Jesus has prayed for us and worked to redeem us from Satan's grip. This should move our soul day in and day out to say no to the devil's temptations, no to unrighteousness, no to ungodliness and worldly desires by laying hold of the one who has already laid hold of us. We must not forget that this present world has a ferocious devil. Revelation 12 says that he's a furious dragon who makes war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We must watch and pray to keep from his hateful assaults against our soul and then set our dependence on Jesus who overcomes his onslaughts of darkness. Which leads us to one last thing that Jesus does for his new community. Jesus dies to rescue his new community from darkness. Jesus dies to rescue his new community from darkness. All of its power, all of its influence. You see, in reading this passage... Of scripture, we've actually entered a cosmic drama that's been playing out ever since the devil declared war on God's Messiah and brought the whole human race under the power of sin. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, followed the devil's lies instead of God's truth in the garden, their rebellion brought every generation of humans into the power of sin and under the punishment of death. 
two things that the devil uses to control his kingdom of darkness. He uses sin to tempt us, to blind us to the glories of Jesus. He uses the guilt that we have because of the sin, holds it over our heads and sends us spiraling into hopeless despair day in and day out. And since death stands as this judicial sentence on humanity for our sin, the devil even likes to hold this threat over people's heads to get them to do his bidding. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2. So sin, death, and the devil are all linked in this world of darkness that opposes God and his Messiah. The devil's work is sin. Sin has gripped humanity. We stand guilty and therefore we all face death, sin, death, and the devil. Now, none of this was outside of God's control, of course. And God had even revealed his plan to deal with the problem of sin, death, and the devil right from the beginning in Genesis 3.15. The promised plan from Genesis 3.15 onward was that one day a woman like Eve would give birth to a son and that son would crush the devil's head. He would undo his wicked works and destroy his kingdom once and for all. The son was born to a virgin named Mary and his name is Jesus Christ. We read of him here. As John puts it elsewhere, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8. But here's how Jesus deals the decisive blow to the devil. He subjects himself to the darkness in order to overthrow it. He subjects himself to the darkness in order to overthrow it for his people. He doesn't dodge the darkness. He meets the darkness head on and willingly lets our sin our sins and the death we deserve because of those sins and all the devil's wicked schemes and he allows all of that darkness to swallow him up on the cross. And verse 30 says, and it was night. You can see it there. Judas goes out and it says, and it was night. John has more in mind than just giving us the time of day it was when Judas betrayed Jesus. He also means that the night had finally come when the light of the world would be snuffed out. Jesus has been telling this all along in the Gospel of John. He's got to continue working while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. The night is the death of Jesus when the darkness swallows up the light. That's also why I read verse 31 at the beginning. Because it brings up the note of Jesus' death. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now, in the darkness, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in Him. We know this. Jesus' glorification is referring to His death on the cross. The whole world system of sin and death and satanic darkness which we could never escape by our own strength, just read the, from Adam to Jesus, read it, there's not a single man that can overcome sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus walks into town, starts casting out demons, telling them what to do, and they tremble before his presence. What's going on? He's, he's the one that's come to overthrow the ruler of this world. And he does it in a way that was... Unexpected. He does it by letting the darkness swallow him up 
on the cross. But that darkness would only swallow him up for three days. Why just three days? I love it in Luke 22, verse 53. Jesus himself even refers to this hour that he's dying on the cross as the hour of the power of darkness. Just an hour. Three days. Why just three days? Because he alone had the strength to overcome the darkness. He alone was destined to win. He alone was qualified for the job to enter darkness and then blow it out to smithereens when he rose three days later. He suffered the penalty for sin. He slew the power of sin. He entered the prison of death. He shattered its chains and nullified Satan's power over all his people forever. That's how he wins. The cross is the darkest moment in world history, and yet in it we find the brightest triumph of all of history. God Almighty defeating sin, death, and the devil for everybody who would trust in him. The serpent of old may have bruised Jesus' heel on the cross, but his head lies crushed beneath the feet of the risen King of Kings. Satan cannot win. He can still make life pretty miserable in this age for God's people, but he remains a defeated foe. And we know his end is the lake of fire. We also know our end because of the work of Jesus. If Jesus is victorious, then all who are united to Jesus are also victorious. Forever. Victory over the enemy is ours forever. Church, here's where you need to draw your strength day in and day out. You will not survive unless you're drawing from the one who is infinitely stronger than you are. And infinitely stronger than the devil is. We will not be strong from a mere get-it-together sort of self-dependence. Or from an escape to this or that comfort or mind-numbing entertainment. We will only be strong through an encounter and a union with the person of Jesus Christ himself who stands victorious for his people and delights to tell them the truth about what he's done for them and what he's going to do for them in this word. I fear that some of us have grown very weak in the fight of faith because we're going to the wrong source for our strength. We're looking to the wrong sources, whether that be our own abilities or our own cleverness or our own strivings after comfort in this world or our own avenues of escape from this or that temptation through through other things you can find in this world, like social media and endless entertainment options. If you turn to your own devices to wage war against the enemy, you will be like Israel going into battle without God's blessing, and the enemy will have you running scared and defeated. But if you set your hope on Christ, if you put on His armor, as Ephesians 6 tells us, if you stand in the strength of His might, then you will be forever equipped. That doesn't mean the battle will get easier. If anything, it will put a big target on your back. Right? That's what happens when you're transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You didn't even know you had a fight before. The devil had you deceived. You were just going along with the flow. Puts you into the kingdom of of His beloved... God puts you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You've got a target on your back because now you look something like Jesus Christ, your elder brother 
And the devil hates you for it. The devil doesn't rage against people he's already deceived. He rages against those who look like Jesus. So it won't be an easier fight. But I can guarantee you this, because of the cross and resurrection, it will be a victorious one. It will be a victorious fight. Because Jesus has already dealt the decisive blow. And Jesus will win in the end. His cross and resurrection guarantee it. His return is coming to finish it. So when you rise tomorrow morning, step on the serpent's head early. That's your application. Step on the serpent's head early in the morning. You ask for help before you hit the alarm clock in the morning from the risen King of Kings. And then you ask for Jesus to help you again to quit hitting the snooze button. And then get yourself before some truth. Saturate your mind with truth that you might be able to to discern the enemy's schemes throughout the day. Memorize promises from Jesus' words to help you resist the devil and then trust Jesus to fight for you in everything. Even when you don't understand why all this stuff is coming at you. Right? The disciples didn't know everything. There's some at the table who don't have a clue what's going on. Verse 28, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. They don't have a clue what's going on. Does that mean Jesus is not fighting for them? No. Even when they don't know what's going on, Jesus is still fighting for them. He's not missing a single detail. Even with Judas's and devils in the mix, he's not missing anything. So even when you don't understand everything, be assured, Jesus knows everything. And Jesus is fighting for you in the midst of it. He is working out your salvation perfectly. If you belong to Him, Jesus will be faithful to deliver you. Look to Him always and not to yourself. Moreover, we're going to get into this next week. Jesus established the new community, these people around you, in order to help you fight this battle. This is the new community who is characterized by the reign and rule and power of Jesus and you have been given the Holy Spirit to love one another. We're going to get it. That's what Jesus says. I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So you're not just alone in this fight. You have, what do we have here? 120, 130 other people fighting with you. So you need to tell each other what you need prayer for. And then you actually need to pray for each other. Don't let a day go by that you're not encouraging one another. As the writer of Hebrews says, lest you too be, lest you too drift away from the faith. Or be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13. Encourage one another as long as it's called today. That you may not be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Of sin. So Christ stands as your risen Lord, and because of his power and authority, you have the ability to overcome sin and temptation. And he's given you a church of people in whose lives he reigns 
Let's live together as this community, fighting until the end.